happy Mother's Day, everyone, and good morning. Because I've been entrusted with a microphone this morning, and because today's message is being recorded, I want to wish my mother a very happy Mother's Day. Uh, Mom, we both know that every good and perfect gift comes from above, and I want you to let you know that you have been an amazing gift to me. So thanks for your love and your service. Thanks for showing me what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I'll talk to you and find out when you choose to listen to this message. We'll find out if you're being truthful with me. (laughs) Mothers teach us many things. I was looking for a list this week about all the things that mothers taught us, and I couldn't add them all up because there's just so many things. The, The basic elements of life when we're younger all the way up to when we become adults and even senior adults, our mothers still teach us things. They teach us things like how to pick up after ourselves. They teach us polite manners. They teach us to say sorry when we hurt someone else's feelings or when we hurt someone. They teach us to wait our turn. They teach us about tough days. I believe there's a song that says something about, Mama said there'd be days like this. There'd be days like this, my mama said. They teach us so many things different things. My mother taught me to be critical. Now, not critical in a negative way or a judgmental sense, although I suppose for those of us who, uh, who are, know my mother and me, you could probably say, no, there's, there's a little bit of that critical side as well. But my mom taught me what it means to be critical in a highly analytical sense. And I'll give you an example of how this came about. When I was growing up, It was fashionable at that time for cashiers as you were going through the checkup line to ask a question. And the question where I grew up was this, paper or plastic? Now, we've moved well well beyond this time now, and some stores don't even give you an option of a bag anymore. They charge you for it. But back then, that was the standard question as you're going through the lineup, paper or plastic? Now, my mom's reply was different than what they were expecting because the cashier was looking for one of two answers. My mom would say, neither. I brought my own. And the cashier usually either was not listening or didn't register, so quite often my mom would be asked this two or three times in, in, in the course of you know, 30 seconds to go through the checkup line. And sure enough, my mom did this. She would, she would bring her paper bags back to the store, then she'd come home and she would unload all the groceries and she'd fold those paper bags back, put them back in the trunk of her car, and that's where they sat. She usually had four or five or six of them. And then when that bag finally started to fall apart, she would tell me, that bag was worth about two or three bucks because she got a five-cent discount every time she brought the bag in. I mean, she was making money off of these bags. But my mom recognized that not only was her response to the cashier a little bit unexpected, but some of these cashiers just flat out didn't listen to her. And she got a little bit annoyed by this, and she developed a hypothesis that, you know what, they really don't care what I say. They aren't really listening to me at all. And so she tested this with the other classic question the most everyone gets asked at the checkout line, how are you doing? My mom thought, my cashier doesn't care how I'm doing. It's just a pleasant greeting. So my mom, in order to test her suspicion, she usually had one of two replies. One, she would say nothing. How are you doing today? Oh, that's nice. That was the response she'd get. Oh, you know, could care less. But my favorite response, she did this a few times. My favorite response is my mom would would give a a kind of a quiet grunt. How are you doing today, ma'am? 
oh, me too. Yeah. And I remember my mom and I would kind of exchange glances. You know, I was pretty young. I was eight or nine at the time. And we'd kind of smile and snicker about the fact that, that my mom had figured out the system. Her analytical sense had found out, you know, this is, this is just something that people like to hear. She doesn't really care. Doesn't really care what's, what's going on here. Now, if Hallmark could encapsulate a story like this, and sell it in a card for $4, I'd buy that card and I'd give it to my mother because it's a great memory the two of us share. But, but we don't, so I just have to live out that memory. But my mom taught me that it's important to listen. And it's important to be critical. And it's important that when you ask a person a question, even as mundane as that question may be, even though you may have asked that question hundreds and hundreds of times, it's important to really listen and to hear how that person is doing what is going on in their life. Now, as a credit to our church community here at Jericho Ridge, I feel like the people here genuinely listen when they ask that question. I feel like you listen to me when you say, Keith, how was your week? How's it going? Because I've heard some of you say, you paused a few seconds before you said you're doing well. What's going on in your life? Or how come you're just doing okay? What sort of things have you been up against? Or great, I'm glad that things are going well in your life. And I do my best as well to sincerely listen and to ask deeper questions and find out how are you really doing? How are we really doing as a group of people? And typically, the two responses that we still probably hear the most and will probably continue to hear the most for many years from now are, I'm doing fine or I'm doing good. Those are usually the typical responses that we get. But there's a new reply that I've started to notice in our community, in the broader region, here at Jericho Ridge. And the reply is this, busy. I'm doing pretty good, but I'm busy. How's your week been? Busy. I've said it. I'm guessing most of you have said it, or you've heard it from someone else. We're busy. Who isn't busy? Now, there's nothing wrong with being busy. We should begin there. It's not shameful. It's not sinful. It simply means that we're busy. We're occupied. We have activities and responsibilities and deadlines and things that we have committed ourselves to, and it it fills up our day. It fills up our week. And so that is why we reply with saying we're busy. And yet, many of us realize that busyness, while while it may be a neutral term, it has an impact on our lives, sometimes quite negatively. There's little side effects that come up because we are consumed with our time, because we are so busy. And these kind of manifest themselves with stress or tiredness or decreased motivation or frustration, loneliness, anger, isolation. The list can go on and on and on, but these things kind of work their way into our lives when we become busy. But at its core, busyness is just really busyness. You might be solving the world's problems with how you're using time and with how busy you are. I, in turn, could be creating the world's problems with how I spend my time and how busy I am, and yet we would still both be busy according to that definition. Busyness is just a word that describes how each of us relate to time. But busyness can get us stuck. And as we looked at this series about what are the things that trip us up, what are the things that keep us in sort of this routine of not being able to get going or or feeling like we're off track, busyness was one that certainly came up 
over and over. It puts us in this pattern of doing and doing and doing and going and going and going without even thinking about the possibility of stopping in our tracks to kind of put our head up and look around and to survey what is going on with how we're using our time. Whether or not the rut that we're in is actually an appropriate use of our time. The number one reason I hear from people as to why they have not done something or why they will be unable to do something is lack of time. Sometimes people feel so busy they can't even imagine considering including something else into their schedule. They don't even consider, wait a second, how I'm running my schedule now, the things that I'm occupied with, is that a better use of my time or a poorer use of my time compared to this other opportunity that I've been giving? Busyness can get us stuck into a situation where we no longer decide how we will use our time because our schedules have already done this for us. Busyness can actually reach a point of enslaving us. And when it does this, we develop a new enemy. And the enemy becomes time. Time becomes our enemy. Time becomes this vicious second-hand clock that never stops. That second hand just keeps going and going and going. And the minutes add up and the hours and the days and the weeks and we can't stop it. So many times I've wished myself and I've heard other people wish this, if I could just stop time for a minute and spend about, you know, 30 hours and just pump up all this work and then just, you know, go back to that same moment I froze time and continue on, oh, that'd be so much better. Time has this way because of our busyness of making us feel like That's our opponent. That's the enemy. And yet, time was created to be a very different thing. The creation story of Genesis 1 is fascinating in and of itself. But one of the most amazing things about that story is how time is referred to, how time is spoken about. It's sort of a poem. And the author decided to structure it based on time. Evening and morning, evening and morning, day after day after day, God creates, God orders. And we find out that the whole story, the commonality between day after day and the whole encompassing part of that theme is all about time. And the most interesting thing about that story, and really if you look throughout the scriptures, is how time is this common theme throughout all of the Bible. And when we find out what is blessed and what is made holy, it's not a mountain that God creates and calls holy so that people can worship on it. It's not a temple that God creates and makes holy so that people can worship in it. It's actually a day that is created. Time is made holy. Time is blessed. A Jewish author by the name of Abraham Joshua Heschel has said that the Bible is more concerned with time than with space. The Bible cares more about time than it does about space. And he says that humanity knows what to do with space. We know what to do with regions and things and possessions. That's what we think about. That's kind of how we're wired. But we have a very difficult time knowing what to do with time, except to make it subservient to space. If we can relate it to space somehow, it kind of helps us out. But time in and of itself is mysterious to us. 
Which might be why we read some of the stories here in Scripture and we scratch our heads and think, why are they talking about things that I'm not as interested in? Why are there lists and lists and lists of genealogies and generations, but we don't really know much about regions and countries? Why are there so many events, all these different stories about events and happenings, but really not much about things and possessions? Why do we have so many stories about history and the impact of people upon people and and kind of this generational flow of history, but we really don't know much about geography? Why is there such an emphasis on time? Well, maybe it's because we all have it. Maybe it's because we can all relate to it. Maybe it's because time in and of itself is life. Our life is time. Maybe it's because time is what provides value to all other things. This is how Heschel understands time. He says, We must not forget that it is not a thing that lends significance to a moment. It is the moment that lends significance to things. It's not a thing that lends significance to a moment. It's a moment that lends significance to things. As his name indicates, Abraham Joshua Heschel, he is a Jewish author. And his words about time are motivated by a specific subject, the Sabbath. If we agree together that busyness is our problem, And the cause of our problem is the lack of time. A devout Jew would rightly tell us that the remedy is observing the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is pretty mysterious. In some sense, we have no idea what it is, why it was meant, why it's observed, what the point is, how to actually observe it correctly. And in another sense, we have clarity about what it was. But it brings us all these different questions. Why was it commanded? Why was Israel commanded to observe the Sabbath? How are people supposed to remember the Sabbath? What does it mean to remember or observe or honor the Sabbath? What can you do on the Sabbath? What can't you do on the Sabbath and why? These are a few questions that usually come up every time this topic is spoken on. Well, the name Sabbath is given to the day of rest that Israel is commanded to keep. On this day, the Israelite community was told to cease their work and honor the Sabbath day by resting. The Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, the day that God blessed and made holy according to the creation story. And the Sabbath is the fourth commandment, the fourth commandment out of ten, and by far, it's the longest commandment. There's a lot of words attached to the fourth commandment. The other commandments, not so much. The Sabbath is understood by many as a time for catching one's breath. A person breathes in for six days at almost a frantic peace. But on the seventh, that is the celebration of the exhale. But still, the command to observe the Sabbath can seem odd according to what many of us are used to. Many of us are confused by the Sabbath because it doesn't feel like it was meant for us. It was meant for a different people group. It was meant for a different time. It feels outdated. It feels old-fashioned. It might even feel irrelevant to us. But it isn't, isn't it ironic that many of us are in dire need of something that provides us with the very thing that the Sabbath was designed to give us? Now, the Sabbath command is given to the Israelites after they exit Egypt. 
after they have been rid of the tyranny of the Egyptians, they cross the Red Sea and they go into the wilderness where they wander around for 40 years. And the first time we see the word Sabbath in the Bible is, is in a story in Exodus chapter 16. And this command to keep the Sabbath, which we're about to look at, it's restated more than any other command in the entire Bible. There's, I think, 613 commands in the scriptures of varying sorts of various people, whether it's uh, rituals or what to eat or not to eat or long-standing commands that are, are for all people for all times. And the Sabbath command is restated more than any one of them. And yet the fascinating thing is that for as much as it's talked about, there is very little talk about how to honor it. Even though it's repeated over and over again, We aren't really told how it should be observed. Instead, we're told why it should be observed. And I think this is the key. Once we begin to understand the why of the Sabbath, it can provide us with insight for how we can choose to honor it. Well, have your Bibles, pick it up and move to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, moving left to right. And I'm just going to summarize what happens in Exodus 16. Last summer, we did a series on Exodus, and and we looked at these different stories, and this story is well known as the manna and the quail story. As I mentioned, the people have left Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea, and now they're in the wilderness with seemingly nothing to do. They're not quite sure what's happening, and Moses is frustrated by the people, and the people are in all sorts of disarray, and and they're grumbling, and they're complaining, and one of the things that they're complaining about is What are we going to eat? What are we going to do here? We're just a whole bunch of people here with nothing to eat, no plan. And so they they ask and they complain for food. And God says, well, I'm going to provide you with bread from heaven. And so they wake up in the morning and there's this dew that covers the land. And this dewy type substance is actually this flaky sort of bread. And they're able to pick it up and they cook with it and they bake with it and it provides them with food. And the stuff is called manna, which means what is it? So these people are amazed. What is this weird white stuff? Oh, we can eat it. And, and so that's how they're provided. And, and then they start complaining about meat. Well, you know, come on, we're just going to eat bread all these years? Come on. And so God allows quail to come down, close down to the ground in the evening time, and they have meat, and they're able to feast on this meat. But they're, giving, they're given very specific instructions about the manna, which is quite interesting. They are told how they should collect manna. They're told that when it gets to be the sixth day of the week, instead of collecting just a day's portions, which if they, if they collected more than a day's worth, it would actually spoil overnight, they were told on the sixth day to, to gather twice as much as they normally would. And miraculously, this food would not spoil overnight. And then on the seventh day, they would not need to go and collect any more manna because everything that they had would be left over from the night before. And the reason that all of this happens, according to the text, is that God is not going to rain down any bread from heaven on the seventh day because God is going to rest. So the understanding is it's the seventh day. It's God's time to rest. So God's not going to provide any manna. So the people are told not to go out and collect it. But it's a bit mysterious because when you look at the text, it really seems like the only reason they're given for not going out to collect it is because there isn't going to be any. 
And so a few people, whether they're tired of leftovers, well, this stuff was so yesterday's meal. <laughs> and a couple days ago, that stuff was all spoiled and full of maggots. So I don't want that. Or some of them were just flat out disobedient, or maybe they were curious. They go out on the seventh day. And sure enough, there's no manna to collect. And God and Moses are frustrated at the people's disobedience, but they're, they're simply told, stay where you are. That's kind of the first reference we have with the Sabbath. So again, it's sort of this confusing day. Well, what's going on? What are we supposed to be doing? In this instance, stay where you are. Eat what you had from yesterday. Stay in your camp and don't do anything differently. But when we get to Exodus chapter 20, just four verses over, that is when we hear Moses, who has come down from the mountain, received the Ten Commandments from God, and he's very clear about what the Sabbath is all about. This is chapter 20 of the book of Exodus, beginning in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Sabbath command points back to creation. Why should people stop their work? Why should they stop working on the seventh day? Well, because God rested on the seventh day. He completed his work by resting on the seventh day. And so the indication is that by resting, the Israelites, the people, will remember that God rested when he created. Remembering the Sabbath helps people remember that God is creator. The Sabbath was a weekly rhythm of remembering. Every week gets up to the seventh day and all of a sudden life's a little bit different. We're not working anymore. No, we're resting. We don't have to gather food anymore. What we had from yesterday is still there. God still provides when he rests. And this assurance of remembering God as creator provided the people with rest. But God's rest on the seventh day isn't the only reason why people are told to remember the Sabbath. A completely different reason is given in Deuteronomy. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is really almost like a summary of of what's happened already. The Ten Commandments are once again delivered to the people. A number of the laws and the provisions are repeated that that were also given earlier in Exodus, uh, Leviticus, and Numbers. And so we get to Deuteronomy, and you would anticipate that you kind of have just this exact same phrase that's given once again, but we don't get that. So if you get to go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12 is where we're going to look at. And again, the Sabbath command, and if you're looking at your Bible, you can see how much bigger this paragraph is given to the fourth commandment than to any of the other commandments. And instead now of remembering, we're told to observe. The people are told in verse 12, observe the Sabbath by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded. And now this part's going to sound extremely familiar. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, Neither you, nor your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your ox, your donkey, any of your animals, any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. And this is the interesting part now. Compare this to what we heard in Exodus, verse 15. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. 
Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. The command to stop their work and to make sure that others don't have to work is very close to what we read in Exodus. But the reason why work should stop has nothing to do with God resting on the seventh day. Instead, it has to do with deliverance. Why the change? Which one is it? In Deuteronomy, the Sabbath helps people remember that they're no longer slaves to the Egyptians. Instead, they're slaves to God. They're servants to God. They've exchanged one master for another. They're no longer serving Pharaoh. They're no longer working for him. They're now serving the Lord. But Exodus says, no, no, no. What you're supposed to do is you're supposed to rest because you remember that God rested when he created. So which one has it right? Or which one is the preferred teaching? That resting is about remembering God in creation or resting is about remembering that you are a delivered people? Well, the answer is in Exodus. It's not Deuteronomy and it's not both. It's actually D, which is always the right answer, all of the above. Because there's more teaching throughout the scriptures. There's more reasons why you should observe the Sabbath. It's not just confined to resting as God rested on creation. It's not confined just to remembering that you are delivered people because God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. It's much more than that. The Sabbath is this weekly rhythm of remembering. It helped people remember God through time. And the assurance of remembering God helped them remember that he was creator and he was also redeemer. And this understanding, this remembrance, this sacred time provided people with rest. But this rhythm of remembering must have been very difficult to quantify. If we read all the accounts of how to observe the Sabbath, and we made a big chart and we compared them all, I'm sure it'd be really tough to figure out how we can best do it. If we're going to try to honor this to the letter, how do we best rest? How do we best emulate what God is doing? How do we best remember what we're told to remember? Which might be why over the years, the, the Jewish priests and rabbis and scribes, they, they had to develop this formula for figuring out how do we really instruct the people to do certain things and not to do other things. And so according to Jewish law, there are 39 categories of work that are prohibited on the Sabbath. And a few of them are indicated right in the story, such as someone that's carrying firewood or, or someone else that is doing work that was clearly something that they should not do. Here's a few examples. No planting or plowing or reaping or cooking or tying or slaughtering or carrying or building. You can Google the rest. It's a long list. And they pretty much all end in I-N-G. No doing these certain things. Now, I like clarity. I like some of these rules. Helps me understand, well, what should I be doing? What should I not be doing? If we're trying to honor this, how can I make sure that I'm honoring this? But I think that if I lived in those days and if I had my 39 list of things that I should not be doing, I'm pretty sure that my mind would change from what I should not do instead of how I should be embracing and honoring this day. How I could remember the life-giving qualities of God. These Sabbath laws got Jesus into all sorts of trouble. He was accused of breaking the Sabbath. But a better understanding of what Jesus did is that he broke the Sabbath laws of his day. He didn't break the fourth commandment. He broke some of these other stipulations that were developed over the years. And so... 
he rejected the narrow-minded interpretations of the Sabbath command because he wanted people to expand their vision and their understanding of what the Sabbath was meant to be. So he healed people. He healed people on the Sabbath. He healed a crippled woman. He healed a man from his sickness, a man with dropsy, a man from blindness, and then he restored a man's withered hand all of these times on the Sabbath day. And this got a lot of people upset, except, of course, the people who he healed. They were quite excited about this, right? But the Pharisees were irate. What's fascinating about the Pharisees is that they use time on the Sabbath to plot how they're going to kill Jesus, which may in fact be work. But they're outraged that Jesus would actually restore and heal someone on the same day. The words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus suggest that people were missing the point. The Sabbath is about helping people remember that God is creator. The Sabbath is about helping people remember that God is redeemer. The Sabbath is even expanded further by Jesus by showing that it's about reminding people that God is healer and restorer. The point of the Sabbath is to provide space to rest and remember. The Sabbath is about providing space to rest and remember. But this weekly rhythm is usually ignored. Many followers of Judaism still observe the weekly Sabbath. Their celebration begins when the sun sets on Friday night with candle lighting and some ceremonies and this welcoming and anticipation of actually the spirit of Sabbath. And then their celebration ends about 24 hours later as the sun sets on Saturday and the work week begins for them as well. Seventh-day Adventists also observe the Sabbath. Even if you've never heard of the Seventh-Adventist Church, I'm sure you probably come to recognize that they observe the Sabbath on the seventh day. And there's many other Christians who apply some of these principles. Many interpret Sunday as the Lord's Day, and so they'll take a portion or all of the Sabbath principles and some of the laws, and they'll incorporate that into their Sunday routine. It's the Lord's Day. It's a day for ceasing our work and for resting and remembering. A lot of people find the topic of the Sabbath to be highly controversial. For some, I suppose it might. But in my mind, the more concerning thing is that the principles of the Sabbath are highly ignored. The principle of the Sabbath is to rest and remember. And when we ignore this principle, we tire and we forget. We get forgetful and we become tired. If busyness is the more popular response to how are you doing, I would say that tiredness is moving up the ranks as well. And yet the Sabbath provides space to rest and remember. And when we do this, we're actually given fuel for our soul. It's restful. It provides us with restoration. Now, we still haven't talked about how we do this. I may have said nothing so far that has changed what you've thought about the Sabbath or how you understand the Sabbath or what it means or why it was commanded. And you might still be resting on that point of, well, how? How do I do this? What does it mean? How do I apply it for my life? How do I get out of this rut that I'm in of constant busyness and tiredness and actually experience some of these things that the Sabbath is designed to provide me with? It's an odd application, but in some sense, I feel like it's the only application for something on the Sabbath. You have to do something. You have to choose to make this part of your life. 
It might sound overly simplistic. It might sound the exact opposite of what you would expect someone to say when we're talking about the Sabbath, but you actually need to take action. You have to do something to put it into your schedule. Otherwise, you'll keep traveling down the road filled with busyness and no rhythm to interrupt your work pattern. And if you don't do something, you'll do nothing. It's very easy when you're doing nothing out of the ordinary to break up your cycle to suddenly forget that God is creator, God is redeemer, and God is healer. The Bible is filled with reminders to remember the Sabbath, but it was often neglected by the people, and they in turn often neglected their God. Do something to create space to rest and remember. Now, the freedom of the Sabbath, the freedom of the new covenant, is that you are free to choose and apply as you wish. Resting and remembering looks a little bit different for each one of us. In fact, resting and remembering this week for you may look very different than how you'll choose to apply it four years from now, and that's fine. There's something beautiful about that. But choose to do something. Put yourself in a space where you can focus on resting and remembering the qualities of God. Your goal is to create space. Your goal is to come up with an idea that excites you and restores you as you think about your God. So here's what you can do. If you're more of a list person, here's a short list. First, choose a time. Choose a time. Many of us, our schedule dictates what we do, so schedule in a time when you will choose to rest. Don't be overly ambitious and make it a 24-hour period for this week. That would be my suggestion. Pick a smaller clump of time, maybe two hours, maybe three hours, maybe an afternoon, and think about how you're going to use that time in your week to feel rested, to feel restored. Second, choose a place. All space is God's space, but some spaces seem to fit us better than others. Depending on what you feel like you need or what you want, it might be a completely new place. You might want to go to a retreat center. You might want to go into nature, into the forest or on a hike and and explore a new place and contemplate and think about being restored and rested. Or you might want to go to a familiar place a place where you've heard from God before, a place that sort of moves you. I know for Pastor Brad, he loves the water. So when it's time for him to rest and reflect and remember, he goes to the water. He gets in his kayak or he walks by the water, he runs by the water, that's his place. Me, I like the library, as silly as that sounds. There's something about the quietness and the smell of those old, disgusting books that fills me with a sense of peace. And as you think about it, it might be just that spot that when you get there, you think, oh, that feels good. That sense of exhale that the Sabbath was meant to provide. Third, choose an activity. One person's work is another person's leisure. One person's time, just the work or, or the stress of it, someone else can, can, can experience that and there's a sense of release. You might want to be completely silent and let your mind wander and contemplate and, and go from there. Some of us find that when we're doing something, it helps us listen better and, and to just kind of release. And so think about something that you might want to incorporate while you're resting and remembering. It might be running or gardening 
It might be playing music or listening to music or reading, memorizing scripture. It might be writing poetry. It might be journaling. So choose a time, choose a place, and choose an activity. Do something to create space to rest and remember. Now, we might feel busy and we might feel tired, but our problem is not the lack of time. The problem is our perception of time. The Sabbath is really like taking one step back to look at the broader picture. And this is actually the problem with the Sabbath in and of itself. When I look at that image, the Sabbath, I'm, I'm, I'm walking down the road of life in my work, in my relationships, in my finances, everything. I'm, I'm going down this line. The Sabbath is stopping and taking one step back and looking at the broader picture. And for using the image of hiking a mountain, you know, a lot of people would say, wait a second. I'm stopping and I'm taking a step back, so now I'm two steps behind. I didn't take the step I was supposed to take, and then I went a step in the opposite direction. Sabbath advocates will tell you this is precisely the point. Because the objective is not reaching the top of the mountain. The objective is enjoying the hike. And as creatures of the Creator, we're designed to enjoy creation and worship the Creator. We can do this by taking time to rest and remember that we are the created, not the Creator. We can do this by resting and remembering that we are the redeemed and not the Redeemer. We can do this by resting and remembering that we are the sick, but he is the healer. Author Mark Buchanan describes the Sabbath as imitating God so that we stop trying to be God. The Sabbath provides us with space to rest and remember. And we're going to do that now. Let's pray. Lord, in the busyness of our lives, we forget. And we thank you, God, that you have created time. That you are simultaneously in time with us and outside of time. You were there before the beginning. You were there at the end. And this time is our life. And so, Lord, we ask that you would provide us with a desire and with a capacity to wait, to stop, to cease, and to reflect on what you're doing in our lives. Lord, we're just going to take a moment here to pause and to be silent. And Lord, now as we listen to you, as we think about how you would like us to apply this message, I pray that we'd have ears to hear from you. Lord, as we sing a couple of songs, I pray that the words of these songs would speak to the busyness of our lives, to the noise in our world, and that we would actually experience your rest that it would fill us up and that we would experience your peace. Amen.